our hearts and minds. So we might hear what it is you have to say to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that also, not just that we hear, but your words change us too. And we pray this now, in Jesus' name. Amen. 1616, in that year, a board, a theological board of the Roman Catholic Church, met to discuss a new scientific theory. It was Copernicus' uh, theory, um, and it was regarding the movement of the sun and the earth and the heavenly bodies, as they rather um, quaintly call them, the planetary system. And... You know, earlier on, 1543, a Polish astronomer called Nicholas Copernicus had come up with, with this theory that indeed uh, the Earth wasn't the centre of the universe, it was the Sun, everything revolved around that. Clearly there were problems with the theory, but it was a major departure from the current theories where, which put the centre, uh, the Earth at the centre of the planetary system and everything revolved around that. As I say, although later on, as with any scientific theory, and I am somewhat cautious about talking about science, as I failed O-level physics three times and gave it up as a bad job. I'm no scientist, but even I can realise that this was a seismic change from you know, the scientific theories with regards astronomy of the day. It was a huge change of understanding, and it became known as a Copernican revolution. His theory, if you like, turned everything else on its head. It was no longer the Earth was at the centre, um, it was the Sun. Everything revolved around that. He thought it was a circular, but actually it's elliptical, the way the planets move around. But as I say, it certainly was a huge major departure from what um, people, scientists, believed before then. I'm going back to this um, board of these theologians discussing this uh, Copernican revolution. You know, after this uh, deliberation, this is what the official said, and it's interesting. It doesn't really have much impact what we're going to have a look at, but Galileo was, you know, tried by the Spanish Inquisition and because of saying that the earth, you know, went around the sun. But that was more politics and polemical issues rather than... because. The Roman Catholic Church, all the way back in 1616, um, said, you know, it stated that to say the sun is at the centre of the world and movable is foolish and absurd and formally heretical. And to say the earth moves is similarly foolish and erroneous in the faith. So that's what they said. Not particularly important um, in terms of what we're going to look at now. But it just gives you an idea of this massive change, this seismic change, this Copernican revolution, for want of a better phrase, in people's thinking. And this is what we see now with Peter. Remember, we looked in chapter 10, how Peter and Cornelius, and how we've been looking at Acts, and you know, in Jerusalem, then all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the gospel was going. It was like if you put a stone in a pond and those ripples which go out from the centre. But last week, as we saw, Cornelius and the whole of his family were converted. These Gentiles, these non-Jews, were converted. They put their trust in Jesus Christ. And as I say, for Peter, this was 
this Copernican revolution, in this revolutionary change in his thinking. You know, at the time, you know, we saw in Jerusalem, these, they were predominantly Jews. They became, they put their trust in the Lord Jesus. They accepted, they knew he was Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was Lord and Saviour. All of that they accepted. But what would happen with regards to the law? And even more so, circumcision. As circumcision was one of those markers, boundary markers, if you like, which you know, divided those who were in, inside of God's covenant, inside of his love, and those who were outside, by anyone who was a non-Jew. And this radical change of revolution that Peter underwent, as I say, we saw last week in chapter 10, you know, Paul, uh, Peter now understands that this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for all people. Admittedly, a lot of the details, particularly about circumcision and the law and those, particularly what was clean, unclean, would be a, an issue which would will culminate in chapter 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. No doubt we'll look at that later on. Also Galatians, particularly probably Paul's first letter, has a great deal to say to this. But as I say, this was a Copernican revolution in Peter's thinking, brought about by the one true God, Holy Spirit working in Peter. These visions which he saw, Cornelius had that appearance of an angel and also the spirit working in him so that it became clear to Peter that the gospel was for all, for Jew and non-Jew alike. I say, first half of this chapter, we're looking at chapter 11, really flows naturally from chapter 10 um, regarding Cornelius and the conversion of his family. Second half of chapter, you know, from uh, this chapter, chapter 11, so verses 19 onwards to the end, gives us a snapshot of a church in Antioch that, you know, it was in the Roman province of Syria, Antioch. It's one of, you know, God's new communities, those um, people who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's made up of both Jew and non-Jew, and we get this snapshot Um, And we'll see how the gospel is bringing people together, people from different ethnic backgrounds, so they can live um, and trust and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, first um, thing I'm going to look at here, verses 1 to 18, turning points. So, it didn't take long for Peter's actions um, that happened in the previous chapter, chapter 10, to come to the attention of those in Judea. Just have a look at uh, verse 1. The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard the Gentiles had received the word of God. <clears throat> you know, Cornelius' family's conversion becomes common knowledge in church circles in Jerusalem. And Peter faces criticism. They want to know what's happening. You know, this was a non-Jew, a Gentile. Unclean, Peter's, you know, as we saw, you know, he was eating with them. He was in the same house as these non-Jews, Gentiles, which would make him unclean. So they want to know what's going on here. Take a look at verse 3. You can see what's, you know, behind their criticism. 
the the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. And Peter's going to have to explain and defend what happened in Caesarea at the home of Cornelius to the church. You know, he's got to face the music, if you like. What is he doing? Has he gone off message? Is he not quite sure, you know, what you know, this um, good news about Jesus means? Why has he gone, you know, down the road he has done with regards to Cornelius and his family? So... Um, If you look back at chapter 10, verse 28, so it should be just across the page there. So this is Peter, this is what he says. He said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And then just go forward a little bit to um, verses 34 and 35. And this is what it tells us there, 34, 35 of chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So you can see this transformation of thought. You know, Peter, you know, first of all he's saying, you know, it's against the law to me to come into a house, your house, And by the end, in 34 and 35, he's saying, I realise the gospel is that everyone, God does not show favouritism. So this was uh, Peter, the Holy Spirit. God has been working in and through him, together with Cornelius. And this is his understanding now. So, But you see, unlike Peter, the church in Jerusalem, they hadn't had their thinking transformed they were still thinking in the old way if you like they were stuck in those old ways of thought and circumcision um, the circumcision part you'll often um, come across in Acts and also in Galatia Galatia, book to to the Galatians which Paul wrote and the circumcision party clearly um, stuck to their understanding that the uh, covenant that God made was the, those who were circumcised. And their expectation of the Messiah who would come to the people of a covenant, that, were, that was the Jews, those who were males who were circumcised, those who had the law of Moses, which amongst other things had laws with regards to what was clean and what wasn't clean, That was still their expectation. They expected the Messiah to come to the people of Israel. And they had, it's probably even Peter, up until, you know, chapter 10, had no idea that this, you know, um, gospel was for all people. I mean, you might think, well, how on earth can they be so slow on the uptake? But this was generation of generation, thousands of years of the covenant, you know, which um, God made with Abraham back in um, chapter 17, which said circumcision was a sign of that covenant between God and his chosen people. They were to be um, a holy people, be holy for I am holy. And those who work, weren't circumcised, those who were outside, their, their, their morality, the way they lived, was completely different to the way 
uh, the people of a covenant, people of a promise, the Jews behaved, particularly with regards to sort of sexual morality. So their thought process and patterns, they just hadn't undergone the transformation that Peter had had in the previous chapter, chapter 10 there. But, I mean, of course, the Jews, we know that um, chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 3, Abraham is told, all people will be blessed through you. So it wasn't that the Jews were to keep it to themselves. They were to be a light to Gentiles. And again, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, it says you'll be a light to the Gentiles. But over generations, over you know, thousands of years, that just didn't um, enter the Jews' sort of thinking. And we know that far from being faithful, they themselves were unfaithful to the God of the covenant themselves. But nonetheless, you can see it would need a Copernican revolution for the Jews to change their understanding, their traditions, their way of um, understanding how God and his covenant worked and how it was not just the people of Israel. So just notice then in this um, chapter 11, these first sort of 18 verses, how slowly but surely but very patiently Peter goes through and explains the events that had occurred in Joppa and Caesarea in the previous chapter. How Holy Spirit was working both Peter and Cornelius' lives. And these were not unconnected events. God was at work. Look at verse 14. He, that's Peter, will bring you a message from which you and all your household will be saved. So Cornelius realises it's Peter who's going to bring the word which will bring salvation to his people. And remember how Peter, in chapter 10, verses 39 through to 43, preaches a message very similar to the message which we had right at the beginning of Acts in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost. And also he preached in chapter 3 when after the healing of the lame man at the gate beautiful outside the temple. And essentially what Peter said, said to the people in Jerusalem was, you killed him, God raised him, we saw him, repent and believe. And, that, and of course... Um, Each one of us responsible for the death of Jesus. But Peter, when he um, preached to him on the day of Pentecost, he was localising it, telling this is what you did to the crowd who is listening to him. So obviously now he's in Caesarea speaking to um, Cornelius and his family. He can't say you, so it's changed to they killed him, but it's still God raised him. We saw him. That was Peter and the the apostles um, who witnessed that, repent and believe. And again, we see that in chapter 10 as well. And this is all part of God's plan to bring salvation to both Jew and Gentile. And verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as it had come on us at the beginning. Do you remember how Jesus said that um, John the Baptist would baptise with water, but uh, Jesus, it would be the Spirit. And this is exactly what happens now to these 
um, non-Jews, these Gentiles here um, in chapter 10, Cornelius and his household. Verse 17. Um, Peter explains, he says this. So if God gave them the same gift, they've been baptised with the Holy Spirit, as we see in uh, verse 15. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? So after Peter's careful, gentle, reasoned explanation... What's the reaction from the church? How did the church in Jerusalem react? Do you see that in verse 18? When they heard this, they had no further objection and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is wonderful, isn't it? We now... All these barriers are broken down, Jew, non-Jew, free and slave, male and female. All these barriers are broken down. Or maybe we still do that in different ways. Have a look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through to 14. I'll read them out, just if you want to flick over there. So this is probably around the time that the church in Antioch is growing, and we'll see fairly shortly that Barnabas and Saul were going to take a collection to the church in Jerusalem. And it's around that time. And remember what we said about Peter realizing that the gospel was for Jew and Gentile. God does not discriminate. And yet here's Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw what they were when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So, wonderfully, we've seen how Peter has come to this understanding that the gospel is for all alike, Jew or non-Jew. God does not show favouritism. Yet it wasn't long before, under pressure, maybe, he's bringing back these distinctions. And the reason I highlight that is because, as I say, whilst we think, you know, this is wonderful, we're all one in Christ, you know, all the barriers down, there's no one who's in, no one out, no one on the outside, there's no sort of inside track, we're all one. I wonder the way I act sometimes, that might not be so... I wonder what you think of this. Um, Tim Chester, he was a 
well, still is a pastor. He's at a church in a place called Boroughbridge in North Yorkshire. But at one time with um, another pastor called Steve Timmis, they um, pastored the Crowded House Church in Sheffield. Um, it was a sort of house-based church where they did have a main um, meeting um, place. Um, my son used to live in Sharrowdale when he was at university there, and I know they had a crowded house, had a, a building. But it was very much based on this idea of um, house base, sharing your lives um, as part of your witness and community and living out your faith in community. And he was in a conversation with um, a conservative evangelical leader of a large church and he he just wanted to you know ask him why does that model you know the crowded house and some other churches this idea of everyday discipleship why why is that something you would not consider and this is what this um pastor said or leader call you know whatever term you want to use to someone who leads a church and this was said, because people like me come from professional backgrounds, and we want churches that reflect our backgrounds, I don't want to be opening my home to people. I don't want to get involved in people's lives. Before people like me went into Christian ministry, we were lawyers, doctors, businessmen. And when we get involved in ministry, we bring those values with us. <clears throat> we want to lead great churches with professional people, church administrators and healthy budgets. We want churches to be well run with polished presentations. Now, I don't know what you think of that. I'm not sure that maybe he's just a lot more honest than I would be. I don't know. And, you know, it cuts both ways. I remember, I don't know if any of you heard of it, it used to be called A Walk of a Thousand Men. They used to missions around parts of the country, northwest of England, northeast of England, Midlands, down in Dorset. And they would, you know, um, split off into teams. They wouldn't take any money with them. They'd be put up by a church in the evenings. And the rest of the time they would pray and depend on people's hospitality. And they would use that to um, tell the gospel, good news of Jesus. Anyway, the person who was telling me this was a farmer nearby, nearby to where we, where we live. Uh, he used to go to a church I used to get, go to. And someone was on their team and um, he sounded if, you know, as if he came from made from Chelsea, you know, uh, someone from Sloan Square or something like that, been to uh, one of the top private schools, been to Oxford. And the feeling amongst the team was, they didn't say it openly, but amongst themselves was, well, what are we going to do with this person? You know, um, well, you know, what's he... It turned out that actually he was the most effective communicator of the gospel. He was the one who could you know, make uh, those friendships. He could initiate conversations. The people they were going around to turn the gospel absolutely loved him. Um, and yet there was that perception somehow because of you know, his background. Well, is, this, is he really going to be much good? So, as I say, you know, isn't the reality... For most disadvantaged people, and I think the most disadvantaged place in this country, Great Britain, was a place called Jaywick, which is near Clacton in Essex, which surprised me. I didn't think it would be down south. Or even if you come from Sloan Square, the greatest need is the gospel, isn't it? And we need God's grace so we don't create barriers. We don't put people in categories, say some are in and some are out. 
and we can do that intentionally, but I rather imagine more likely we do it unintentionally, a rather more subtle way of doing things. We wouldn't be quite as honest as that church leader of that church which um, made that sort of uh, comment to Tim Chester. And that we need God's grace, don't we, to enable us to see people in the way that Christ sees and people who are in need of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we don't and we shouldn't erect those barriers to prevent people hearing the gospel. Secondly, then, we're going to look at verses 19 to 30. Unity on display. You might recall when we looked back at chapter 8, after the stoning of Peter, of, of Stephen and his death, the church in Jerusalem faced severe persecution and Saul began to destroy the church. He was going door to door and the believers were scattered um, many parts, Samaria and um, Judea. But although they were scattered, they still continued to preach the gospel. In verse 19, we read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecutions that broke out when Stephen was um, killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. But do you notice the difference in 20, verse 20? The men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who arrived in Antioch, they began to speak to Gentiles as well. It was now not just exclusively Jews, it was non-Jews as well. And you see, also if we look there, great numbers turned to the Lord. Antioch was third largest city in the Roman Empire. After Rome, Alexandria, and then it was Antioch. It was a huge city, strategic, big trading uh, centre. So this was a really sort of key place for gospel to be spreading and for people to be turning to the Lord. No doubt in God's wisdom and providence, the gospel comes to Antioch, this important um, strategic city and again the message comes back to the church in Jerusalem of what's happening here again both Jew and Gentile non-Jew are coming to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus so they send someone to find out what's going on and they send Barnabas First heard of Barnabas, didn't we, all the way back in chapter 4. He was a Cypriot Jew, and his name means son of encouragement, which seems an ideal person to send to this new um, community of believers in Antioch. And do you remember when we looked at chapter 9, how after that dramatic conversion of Saul... It was Barnabas who spoke up for Saul in the church in Jerusalem, unsurprisingly, considering his track record, you know, the fact he had you know, overseen the murder, the killing of Stephen, and that um, persecution of the church in Jerusalem. When 
Saul came now, obviously a changed man, who'd now put his trust in Jesus and who was preaching fearlessly for all about Jesus, both in Damascus and when he got back to Jerusalem. It, understandably, people would have been concerned, anxious, you know, what's changed? Well, obviously a lot had changed, but it was Barnabas who spoke up for um, Saul. And when Barnabas gets to Antioch, he sees clear evidence of God's grace. He sees the church growing. He sees the believers, both Jew and non-Jew, believing, putting their trust in the Lord Jesus and living out their faith together. And indeed it's in Antioch where the title Christian first became Jew. It was probably a term of derision, an insight, a bit like... um, Methodists, you know, Charles Wesley, you know, given how the Church of England was going, you know, he set up the Methodist Church and Methodism, it was a sort of a term of abuse, really. And the same sort of thing, but this is, they became known as a Christian because of the way they gave and dedicated themselves to following and loving the Lord Jesus. As I say, Barnabas was really just the person to help build, encourage, and teach, you know, this. Um, God's new community in Antioch. But there's someone, as I say, there's, Barnabas knows someone else who would be able to help. And of course it's Saul. The last we saw Saul was at the end of um, chapter 9, where he's gone back to his hometown of Tarsus. You know, the, Jew, the Jews were plotting um, to murder him, so they managed the church in Jerusalem to get him back to smuggle him out of Jerusalem and he went back to Tarsus but it's Barnabas who sends, who goes and gets Paul at Saul, he's not Paul quite at this point, goes and gets Saul to come with him to encourage, to teach and help the church in Antioch grow grow not just numerically but in their faith and their knowledge and their love of Christ And in a way, that fulfills Acts chapter 9, verse 15. If you you remember, it said, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. So that was um, in chapter 9. And, you know, this is being fulfilled now. Saul with Barnabas is there in the church of Antioch, this church made up of both Jew and non-Jew, and he is helping it grow as I say, not just grow in numbers, but it, clearly, as we've seen here, many are coming to the Lord. But it's that depth of knowledge, of understanding what it means to live as one who follows Christ. Um, and so, as we see, that church keeps on growing. And we can see that it's the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ who is working to build his church there in Antioch. Now, a number of years back now, as when we were at St. Nate's Evangelical Church, um, and we had um, planned, or the, part of the elders decided a church plant was, was what we ought to do. And in our church meetings we prayed for this. And also we pray for in our um, morning services, you know, public worship, you know, where anybody from public can come along. And people used to 
pray for the church plant. And I always used to, I mean, I shouldn't have found it funny, but when, when they prayed for the church plant, I thought, was it a chrysanthemum or a yucca plant or something? And I just sort of, being very juvenile, just found it quite funny. But someone more practical and far more helpfully said at one of the meetings, is it a good idea to be praying for a church plant? Can we not actually say what we're doing? Because it just sounds a bit weird. If someone from outside came along to our morning service and people were praying for a church plant, we all know what it means. In our church meetings, we know that's not a problem. But when, you know, and you know, it's a bit like when people stand up here and pray for snake. What is snake? You know, I, we know what it is. But, you know, but actually, when I think about it, this idea of a church plant, it isn't, you know, a plant. Although, you know, praying for a church plant sounds weird, actually, a church which is planted, a new church, one of these new, God's new communities, that's just like a plant. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be taken care of. It needs to be fed. I've just planted a load of seeds, and it's weird how I get so excited when they germinate with things. But, you know, you need to water them. You need to make sure they're warm enough, all of it. And, and so, in a way... Church plant, the idea of a, a plant, is exactly what you know. This um, new church in Antioch is what it needs. It needs to be cared for. It needs to be instructed. It needs to be taught. It needs that encouragement. As I say, Barnabas and Saul together, they were the right people. Again, no doubt in God's providence, brought them to help nurture, help this church grow in their love and their knowledge of Christ and how to live for Christ as well and you know I mean it, what, knowing and growing and understanding by the, probably by the sort of first half of the second century churches had what they called the didache which was a, a set it's a bit like a catechism we would have so even right back in about 150 AD onwards you know they saw the importance of teaching uh, not for the sake of knowledge but understanding what it means to love trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and, and before they had such things as uh, the didache that's exactly the type of thing I think Barnabas and uh, Saul would have been doing. And we see at the end, between, in verses 27 to 30, we see signs of that maturity, that growth in their love, not just for the risen Lord Jesus, but for other Christians too, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because as we read at the end of verse 11... It was predicted that there would be a severe famine in the Roman Empire. And indeed, during the reign of Claudius, there were several famines. And one or two of them particularly affected Judea. And hence, and it would seem that this one was particularly um, bad in Judea, Jeru- you know, Jerusalem, that part of the world, which I, I mu- must have been because the church in Antioch was sending them, you know, this um, aid, they made a collection form. You know, they general as we see that there in um, verse twenty, uh, in verse twenty-eight, disciples, and each one was able, decided to provide help for brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Saul and Barnabas take this gift, and this was a gift for the church in Antioch. Many of them Gentiles. 
were going to give to the church in Jerusalem and Judea, in that area, who were struggling, who obviously were suffering the effects of this famine. And they did that um, quite freely, out of their own volition, which again just shows how Christ is working in this new church in Antioch, so that when they hear of a need of their brothers and sisters, people they've never met before in Jerusalem, they go and put together this collection to bring um, aid to the church in Jerusalem. And it's a tangible display of unity and the oneness found in and through Christ. So let's pray. When they heard this, they had no further objection and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And Father, we do thank you that your gospel, that good news about Jesus Christ, is for all, for Jew and Gentile alike, for slave and free, for all. Help us as... We think about that, it's something we know very well, and yet give us the grace to not only say that with our lips, but in our thoughts and in our actions, might that, that, might that be true? Might there be that oneness that is found in Christ? And might we not try to include or exclude people from, for whatever reason, from whatever background? Give us your grace, Lord, so that we might without fear or favour, tell people of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray this now in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.